So without further ado, this is Terry Wilson, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Uh, I'm only here for a couple of reasons. Uh, I'm, I'm the, I work with Ramsey as the editor of this little series of books we called Outspoken Authors. And what they are, they're like chapbooks, and they take, uh, the idea is to take an author who's uh, well-known and active in the field, mostly of science fiction, who has some kind of profile, who also has something to say, who's not just a storyteller, but also uh, makes up other kind of stuff. And... Um, we were happy to get Rudy involved in the field. We've also, uh, many times it seems like a who's who of SF. We have Michael Moorcock, we have Ursula Le Guin, we have Rudy, we have Corey Doctorow, we have, who else we have? Um, well, yeah, but I stick, stuck myself in because I could. I'm not uh, a science fiction writer with quite that profile. At any rate, um, I wanted to put this book out in the world, and I'm quite happy with how it looks, and we got Rudy to do it. But I'm also here because I am a science fiction writer. I have been for about 40 years. Is that right? And uh, it's been, Rudy and I have bumped into each other over a number of years. Rudy was uh, much higher. Rudy's quite important in the history of science fiction. He is one of the, he's the only person I think that's won the Philip K. Dick Award twice. Is that, could that be true? There might be some other. There might be some others, and <laughs> but I don't know of them. Rudy was always kind of a wild card in the field. He kind of came into it uh, sort of like a rocket ship that was spinning in a weird orbit and got a lot of attention quite early and has written a number of very important and interesting books. Uh, he's also written um, math books like The Fourth Dimension. He's written sort of non-non-fiction like Saucer Wisdom, he's written series, uh, sort of a, I think it sort of uh, happened into a series, the, the, um, the wares, the wares, you know, he's written uh, what you would call conventional science fiction unless you, well, in a, he's his own convention, but at any rate, he's, he's sort of had his own orbit in science fiction, he's blazed quite a trail, and it was always a, I used to run into him, we had the same agent, but we've become quite good friends since we've been in California. And um, so we're glad to have him aboard um, Outspoken Authors, but uh, I'm proud to have him as a friend and a colleague in the field as well. So here he is, Rudy Rucker. Thank you, Terry. I've never been sure how to describe Saucer Wisdom, but non-nonfiction is good. <laughs> It's a book of speculations about the future, and I say the reason I know these things is because I have a friend who was abducted by a UFO, and he went to the future and, and told me all these things. And the main character is called Rudy Rucker. Anyway, uh, I'm happy with this book. It's a very nice-looking little book, cute composition book, spine. And uh, I'm thankful to Terry and Ramsey for helping make this happen. So, I think this book, there's a, an essay and there's two stories and there's an interview that Terry did. So I think I'm going to read the end of one of the stories and then maybe a, a little bit from one of the essays. Uh, we'll see. We'll also can do some Q&A, which is often the most 
interesting part of an author appearance. So this story is called Rapture in Space, and the theme is, uh, I'll start it near the end, and there's this guy, he's sort of a, well, sort of a, a sleazy, stoner kind of a guy, and he gets this woman to come in with him, and they're going to broadcast the first uh, porno video from outer space, which I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. And, uh, <laughs> and they, there, there's all sorts of difficulties in making it happen, but they arrange that people will be buying it as a sort of a streaming download. It won't be, in, in a sense, a public video on the public airwaves. So they've got it all covered. And they have investors that have lent them the money. Because this is in the future when they have private space flights, which they're just starting to now. In fact, I don't, I'm sure some people will jump on this idea. Anyway, and so they're calling their show Rapture in Space. So, you know, they've got a million people have signed up to see this. And uh, so it's uh, Denny and Silky. Silka is the, is the woman. So the great day came. Naked, save for a drenching of space rapture aeroscent, that's product placement. They've got some products they're going to be using. Silka, Silka and Denny waved goodbye and stepped into their shuttle box. It was shaped like a two-meter thick letter D, with a rounded floor and with a big picture window set into the flat ceiling. A crane loaded the shuttle box into the bay of the space shuttle along with some satellites, missiles, building materials, etc. A worker dogged all the stuff down and then the bay doors closed. Silka and Denny wedged themselves into their putty-like floor. Blast off, roar, shudder, push, clunk, roar some more. Then they were floating. The bay doors swung open and the astronauts got to work with their retractable arms and space tools. Silka and Denny were busy too. They set up the cameras and got their little antenna locked in on the XVID dish. So that's the channel down on Earth, XVID. They started broadcasting right away. Some of the Rapture and Space subscribers had signed up for the whole live protocols in addition to the 90-minute show that Silka and Denny were scheduled to put on in only half an hour, Denny, said Silka, only 30 minutes till we go on. She was crouched over the sink, douching and vacuuming the water back up. As fate would have it, she was menstruating. She hadn't warned anyone about it. Denny felt cold and sick to his stomach. Exped had scheduled their show right after takeoff because otherwise, with all the news going on, people might forget about it. But right now he didn't feel like fuffing at all, let alone getting under. Every time he touched something or even breathed, his whole body moved. All clean now, sang Silka. No one can tell, not even you. There was a rapping on their window. One of the astronauts, a jolly jock woman named Judy. She grinned through her helmet and gave them a high sign. The astronauts thought the Rapture and Space show was a great idea. It made people think about them in new, more interesting ways. I talked to Judy before the launch, said Silka, waving back. She said to watch out for the rebound. She floated to Denny and began fondling him. Ten minutes, Starman. Outside the window, Judy was a shiny form against Earth's great marbled curve. The clouds, Denny realized. I'm seeing the clouds from on top. His genitals were warming to Silka's touch. He tongued a snap crystal out of a crack between his teeth and bit it open. Inhale. The clouds. Silka's touch. He was hard. Thank God he was hard. 
This is going to be all right. The cameras made a noise to single the start of the main transmission, and Denny decided to start by planting a kiss on Silka's mouth. He bumped her shoulder, and she started to drift away. She tightened her grip on his penis and led him along after her. It hurt, but not too unpleasantly. She landed on her back on the padded floor and guided Denny right into her vagina. Smooth and warm, good. Denny pushed into her and rebound. He flew rapidly and buttocks first up to the window. He had hold of Silka's armpit and she came with him. She got her mouth over his penis for a second, which was good, but then her body spun around and she slid tooth rakingly off him, which was very bad. <laughs> Trying to hold a smile, Denny stole a look at the clock. Three minutes. Rapture and Space have been on for three minutes now. 87 minutes to go. <laughs> it was another bruising half hour or so until Denny and Silka began to get the hang of space fuffing. And then it was fun. For a long time they hung in midair with Denny in Silka and Silka's legs around his waist, just gently jogging but moaning and throwing their heads around for the camera. Actually, the more they hammed it up, the better it felt. Auto-suggestion. Denny stared and stared at the clouds to keep from coming, but finally he had to pull out for a rest. To keep things going, they did rebounds for a while. Silka would lie spread-eagled on the floor, and Denny would kind of leap down on her, both of them adjusting their pelvises for a bullseye. She'd sink into the cushions, then rebound them both up. It got better and better. Silka curled up into a ball and impaled herself on Denny's shaft. He wedged himself against the wall with his feet and one hand, and used his other hand to spin her around and around, a bobbin on his spindle. <laughs> Denny lay on the ground, and Silka did leaps onto him. They kissed and licked each other all over, and from every angle, the time was almost up. For the finale, they went back to midair fuffing, arms and legs wrapped around each other, one camera aimed at their faces, and one camera aimed at their genitalia. They hit a rhythm where they always pushed just as hard as each other, and it action-slash-reaction canceled out hard and harder, with Big Earth out the window. Yes, the air full of their smells, yes, the only sound, the sound of their ragged, ragged breathing, yes, now, now, ah. Denny kind of fainted there and forgot to slide out for the cum shot. Silka went blank too, and they just floated, linked like puzzle pieces for five or ten minutes. It made a great finale for the Rapture and Space show, really much more convincing than the standard sperm spurt. Two days later, they were back on Earth, with the difference that they were now, as Denny had hoped, cashy and starry. People recognized them everywhere and looked at them funny often asking for a date. <laughs> they did some interviews, some more endorsements. They got an ex-vid contract to host a monthly Space Fuff variety show. Things were going really good until Danny got a tumor. It's a dooky little kilp down in my bag, he complained to Silka. Feel it. Sure enough, there's a one centimeter lump in Danny's scrotum. Silka wanted him to see a doctor, but he kept stalling. He was afraid they'd run a blood test and get on his case about drugs. Some things were still illegal. A month went by and the lump was the size of an orange. It's so gawky you can see it through my pants, complained Denny. It's giga ouch and I can't cut a vid this way. But he still wouldn't go to the doctor. 
Well, with all the snap he could buy and with his new cloud telescope, Denny didn't notice what was going on in his body most of the time. He was happy to miss the next few ex-vid dates. Silka hosted them alone. Three more months and the lump was like a small watermelon. When Denny came down one time and noticed that the tumor was moving, he really got worried. Silka, it's alive! The thing in my bag is alive! Ah! Silka paid a doctor $2,000 to come to their apartment. The doctor was a bald, dignified man with a white beard. He examined Denny's scrotum for a long time, feeling, listening, and watching the tumor's occasional twitches. Finally, he pulled the covers back over Denny and sat down. He regarded Silka and Denny in silence for quite some time. Decode, demanded Denny. What the kilp we got running here? You're pregnant, said the doctor. Four months into it, I'd say. The quickening fetus gave another kick, and Denny groaned. But he knew it was true. How? The doctor steepled his fingers. I, I saw a rapture in space. There were certain signs to indicate that your um, partner was menstruating. Check. Menstruation, as you must know, involves the discharge, in, discharge of the unfertilized ovum along with some discarded uterine tissues. I would speculate that after your ejaculation, the ovum became wedged in the tip of your penis. The slit, it is conceivable that under weightless conditions, the sperm's flagella could have driven the now fertilized ovum into your vast deferens. The ovum, ovum implanted itself in the <coughs> blood-rich tissues there and developed into a fetus. I want an abortion. No, protested Silka. That's our baby, Danny. You're almost half done carrying it. It'll be lovely for us. And just think of the publicity. Uh, said Danny, reaching for his bag of dope. No more drugs, said the doctor, snatching the bag, except for the ones I give you. <laughs> he broke into a broad, excited smile. This will make me, this will make medical history. And indeed it did. The doctor designed Denny a kind of pouch in which he could carry his pregnant scrotum. <laughs> and Denny made a number of video appearances, not all of them X-rated. He spoke on the changing roles of the sexes, and he counted the days till delivery. In the public's mind, Denny became the symbol of a new recombining of sex with life and love. In Denny's own mind, he finally became a productive and worthwhile person. The baby was a flawless girl, delivered by a modified cesarean section. Sex was never the same again. So, we still have pretty much time. Maybe I'll read another little bit from uh, one of the essays. I'll read the end of, I have this essay in here called Surfing the Gnarl, and it's the same title as the book. And uh, it combines a, a couple of kinds of ideas. Uh, does, it hmm? uh, does it have sex? Maybe. What doesn't? <laughs> and then uh, there's one idea in there I talk about a lot. I, for, for, for 20 years, my day job was teaching computer science at San Jose State. I, I was always writing, but even if you're you know, a somewhat well-known writer, it's a very steep curve, you know, it goes down the amount you make. So to make a living, I had to also teach, that was my day job. But I learned a lot about computer science and uh, got very interested in some aspects of it. 
And one aspect is this thing that I call gnarl, which is it's this level of complexity. It's not really random, but it's when you have something like the Mandelbrot set or something, some kind of computation. Like if you have two pendulums, the way things swing, swing around in these funny ways, you can have something that's in a way a predictable computation, but the outputs of it are just so, so weird that in fact it's not practical to predict for longer than a second what's going to happen. And these are gnarly processes. And uh, so I mentioned that uh, Isaac Asimov in Foundation Series talked about a universe in which the future is to some extent regular and predictable instead of being gnarly. His mathematician character Harry Seldron has a technique called psychohistory that allows him to foretell the large-scale motions of society. This is fine for an SF series, but in the real world, it seems not to be possible at all. One of the more intriguing observations regarding history is that, from time to time, a society seems to undergo a sea change, a discontinuity, a revolution. Think of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Industrial Revolution, the 60s, or the coming of the web. In these rare cases, it appears as if the underlying rules of the system have changed. Although the day-to-day -day progress of a system may in any case be unpredictable, there's a limited range of possible values that the system actually hits. In the interesting cases, these possible values lie on a fractal shape in some higher dimensional space of possibilities. This shape is what chaos theory calls a strange attractor. Looking at the surf near a spit at the beach, you'll notice that certain water patterns recur over and over. Perhaps a double-crowned wave on the right, perhaps a bubbling pool of surge beside the rock, perhaps a high-flown spray of spume off the front of the rock. This range of patterns is a strange attractor. When the tide is lower or the wind is different, the waves will run through a different repertoire. They'll be moving on a different strange attractor. During any given historical period, a society has a kind of strange attractor. A limited number of factions fight over power. A limited number of social roles are available for the citizens. A limited range of ideas are in the air. And then suddenly, everything changes, and after the change, there's a new set of options. Society has moved to a new strange attractor. Although there's been no change in the underlying rules for the social computation, some parameter has altered so that the range of currently possible behaviors has changed. Society switches to new chaotic attractors are infrequently occurring zigs and zags generated by one and the same underlying and eternal gnarly social computation. The basic underlying computation involves such immutable facts as the human drives to eat, find shelter, and live long enough to reproduce. From such humble rudiments doth history's great tapestry emerge, endlessly various, eternally the same. I mentioned that SF helps us to highlight the specific quirks of our society at a given time. It's also the case that SF shows us how our world could change to a radically different set of strange attractors. One wonders, for instance, if the World Wide Web would have arisen in its present form if it hadn't been for the popularity of Tolkien and of cyberpunk science fiction. Very many of the programmers were reading both of these sets of novels. It seems reasonable to suppose that Tolkien helped steer programmers towards the web's odd, niche-rich fantasy land architecture. And surely the cyberpunk novels instilled the idea of having an anarchistic web with essentially no centralized controllers at all. The fact that the web turned out to be so free and ubiquitous 
seems almost too good to be true. I speculate that it's thanks to Tolkien and to cyberpunk that our culture made its way to this new strange attractor where we presently reside. In short, SF and fantasy are more than forms of entertainment. They're tools for changing the world. So maybe I'll stop there, and I'm sure you all can come up with some questions, and I can talk a little bit more. Is the strange attractor the pattern itself, or is it what creates the pattern? It's, it's the range of patterns. If you could, it's like sometimes you'll see a simple example. You'll see a graph, and it'll say, well, this is like, they'll put a dot for each pairs of maybe somebody's income and their age. There'll be a certain pattern. And it might lie in a straight line, or it might lie, you know, in some strange kind of weird shape. And when you bring in more and more parameters in society, like, you know, age, income, race, uh, opinion, health, you get this sort of rather large high-dimensional space. And then you'll have these, these patterns in there of where there's a lot of people, you know, are here. And so these are like the people are sort of attracted to these sort of zones. And you tend not to see, you know, certain kinds of people. You won't see like a, a poor Republican <laughs> very often. A poor young Republican, I don't know. But, uh, and so the idea is what, where, where things are actually at in the newspaper, it sort of pops around, but there's a certain kind of number of places where it visits and revisits. You know, childhood abuse, uh, you know, abortion, gay marriage, Israel, oil, there's certain things that it's always revisiting over and over. And that's the sort of, the sort of space that we live in, this attractor where we're stuck. And then something happens finally and suddenly it's different. And that's, uh, that's the kind of thing that you're really looking for when you're looking for a revolutionary upheaval of society to get it onto a new attractor. Something happens that uh, causes everyone to re-examine their, all of their basic assumptions. It could be that, but like it's the Black Death. And, you know, it's it's yeah. It could be something like the Black Death. It are a lot of times it's not something that obvious that it's going to do it. You know, well like, I mean like McLuhan was always talking about that kind of thing, where you know you get the radio and suddenly you get the railroad and people are suddenly viewing the world in a completely different way. The and yeah, as I mentioned, the, the internet has has changed a lot the way people think of things. The telephone, the telephone. Yeah, any any kind of new communications media tends to have that effect. But there can be other things too, like a, a Great Depression. Yeah, that comes out of like chaos theory. The, uh, the term itself, strange attractor, is it? Yeah, that's a, a term in chaos theory. And then there's this thing they call a, a bifurcation point. And that's when, it's instead of just going along, it splits into, onto a different attractor. And I used to look at these a lot on the screen when I was working at Autodesk. There's this guy, James Glick. He's a, a reporter, pretty well-known writer. He wrote a very popular book called Chaos. And that was around 19, oh, around 1990, 1988. Yeah. And, uh, and I was at Autodesk, and we wrote 
a suite of software programs to illustrate that book. There's this idea that we had that it still hasn't really come about, but it seemed like it'd be nice if when you had a science book, it was full of kind of living illustrations, things where you could tweak and, and adjust things. And so we did that for, for Glick. And so I spent, oh, I don't know, maybe hundreds of hours looking at these programs and designing them and playing with them. And I used to have trouble understanding what they were talking about, which would be the state that you're in at this point. And then after a while, they got to be my friends, where I'd say, well, this one looks like that. And then I can tweak it, and I can watch it turn from looking like a boomerang into looking like an oak leaf, you know. And then for the dots that are hopping, or usually the way these attractors arise, you'll, have, you'll be iterating a process for something. You could think of it as the state of the country. And then you keep reapplying the same algorithm to it, and it just hops to seemingly a random point. But when you look at all the points that it visits, you say, oh, it's always stuck on this, this grainy boomerang, you know. And then uh, you do something else, you, you tweak some other parameter, and suddenly it jumps over and it's doing a different thing like that. But these things, they're sort of, the, the interesting thing about things like mathematical computation theories, you tend to see these things that are sort of universal properties of systems. The, the fact that the future is unpredictable, it's not really a matter of opinion. It's, it's just, it's in the nature of things that the world is acting like a computation, but there's, we've known actually since Alan Turing proved it back in the 1930s that it's even in principle impossible to have some other computation that will predict what all the other computations are going to do. It's, you get into sort of a liar paradox situation. If something can predict everything, it can predict what it's going to say, and you know it'll say, I'm going to say no, but then it doesn't say that. And so, uh, and so there's a lot. I mean, there's this new TV show I was just seeing ads for it about a little boy who he knows about the Fibonacci series from mathematics, and he's able to predict everything that's going to happen in the world. <laughs> that's that's not very likely. <laughs> and we can't even predict the weather. Well, you can't even predict where you're going to find the Fibonacci series. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. What's a Fibonacci? Oh, that's there's this dude uh, in Italy, and he wrote problems to amuse his friends. His name was Fibonacci. Fibonacci in Italian means the blockhead. It was sort of a joking name his friends gave him. And he had this this question about somebody raising rabbits. And suppose that every week, every pair of rabbits gives birth to another pair. And so the first week you have one pair, or maybe it takes them two weeks, and then the second week you have still one pair, but then you have two, and one and one is two, and then one and two is three, and then two and three is five, and then three and five is eight. So it's a series where you keep adding the successive pairs. And uh, it's a famous series because it converges to the golden ratio. Now, you don't really want to know this. You can find it in, in sunflowers and pine cones. If you count, if you get a pine cone and you count the number of spirals that go like this, and the number that goes like this, they're very likely to be something like 8 in one direction and 13 in the other. And those are a pair of Fibonacci numbers. But yeah, 
We don't want to go there. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's talk about porno from outer space. <laughs> well, they're very related. <laughs> I wanted to introduce you to this is Jim Isbet, who's another PM Press author. And Anselm Hollow introduced us 25 years ago. Yeah. On Dunder Street. Really? You mean the Trieste? Huh? Was it at the Trieste? No, no, it was, in a, it was a reading that, you, that somebody was doing. I think Anselm was there. Yeah. Huh. That was a long time ago. In North Beach? Yeah, that joint uh, where Montgomery crosses Columbus. Right after that, there's a building there. Canessa Park Gallery? Yeah, there was a gallery there, an architect on the building. Do you remember that? I remember seeing Anselm in North Beach, and I remember he was going to give a reading. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hello. Good to see you again. Yeah, Anselm is a real hero of mine. He's a... I first started reading his poetry a very long time ago. It must have been the 1970s. And then we, we lived in Lynchburg, Virginia, before we came out here. It was one of these odd works of fate that while I was helping to found cyberpunk literature, I was living in the hometown of the evangelist Jerry Falwell. <laughs> I don't think I knew anybody else in that town who read science fiction. But, yeah. And then Anselm Hollow turned up because he was the writer in residence at this small college nearby called Sweetbriar. And then I had read his poems, I, I really worshipped them. And he was very happy to have me as a friend. And he's got everything. Yeah, he's a universally educated friend. <clears throat> he once said, he's Finnish, he once said, every Finn deserves to have his, his biography written. It's so hard to be a yeah, Finn. He's coming to the strange attractor. He's yeah. coming to that. Yeah. You can in uh, Mystery Writers and uh, more Mystery Writers and some Mystery Writers after that. Speaking of... Up on the brain there. I remember Andy Orrell said everybody should be, you know, famous for five minutes or fifteen, 15 minutes. 15. Well, I did a computation, and if we divide it, share it out equally, uh, given our lifespan and how many people there are on Earth, we have enough so everybody can be famous for a third of a second. Because <laughs> the average person lives about six billion sec, three billion seconds, and, and there's about six billion people, so you each get a get half a second. But the thing is, that's how long it takes you to notice something. Is, thing, right? Yeah, each gets their own half second. Right. But the yeah, trouble with a half second thing. is that's how long you to note. It takes you to notice something is happening. You know, so just while you're reading, you have you know been selected. You know, it's already over. So. Yeah. As it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Anselm Hollow introduced us twenty-five years ago. But maybe I'm getting a little off the thread here. Oh, well, you could you could talk other people into giving you their half second. That's if you're the preacher. Everybody gives me their half second. Another book I'm pushing is that my autobiography just came out, Nesta Scrolls. It's a. How come there's a picture of Bruce Crowley on the cover? 
That's me. I'm much prettier than Bruce. <laughs> He's all fat. This is when I was 24, so I took this picture. It's in front of a painting. It doesn't look like Bruce. You know what it looks like? It looks like Ralph Reese, the cartoonist. Anybody remember Ralph Reese? He looked like that. I used to have brown hair. Yeah, and this, I don't know. I could read you something from this, or maybe we should just do more questions. Read something? All right. Uh, well, I didn't make a real selection. Uh, let's see. Maybe I'll read the first page. Let's see what happens with that. In the summer of 2008, a vein burst in my brain. A cerebral hemorrhage. I spent a week at death's door, and then I got better. In normal times, I don't think directly about death. It's like trying to stare at the sun. But that summer I did think about it. It would have been easy to die. Conditioned by a zillion novels and movies, you tend to think of death as a big drama with a caped grim reaper kicking in your midnight door. But death may be as ordinary as an autumn leaf dropping from a tree. No spiral tunnel, no white light, no welcome from the departed ones. Maybe it's just that everything goes black. In those first mornings at the hospital, I'd sit on the patio with an intravenous drip on a little rolling stand, and I'd look at the clouds in the sky. They drifted along, changing shapes with the golden sunlight on them. The leaves of a potted palm tree rocked chaotically in the gentle airs, the fronds clearly outlined against the marbled blue and white heavens. Somehow I was surprised that the world was still doing gnarly stuff without any active input from me. I think this was when I finally came to accept that the world would indeed continue after I died. Self-centered as I am, this simple fact had always struck me as paradoxical. But now I understood it, right down in my deepest core. The secrets of the life and death are commonplace, yet only rarely can we hear them. Sitting on that patio, and even more so when I came home, I came to understand another natural fact as well. The richest and most interesting parts of my life are the sensations that come in from the outside. As long as I've been in my hospital bed, the world was dull and gray. I've been cut off the external input, halfway down the ramp into the underworld. When I made it back to the trees, people, clouds, and water, I was filled with joy at being alive. It was like being born.